<clears throat> Today is October 15th, 2023, and we are going to try to uh, give a uh, talk today, <clears throat> and the title is Establishing and Sustaining a Zen Practice. <clears throat> I want to apologize in, a, in advance uh, for my voice. I've never quite had this happen before, but <clears throat> new experiences are good, <laughs> and maybe it'll uh, it'll come along as we as we move through this material. So I want to start out with the key, the key to practicing Zen. And that is don't separate practice from your life. Your life, your practice, the same thing. I'm giving this talk today partly because uh, Dara Sensei uh, gave a workshop yesterday and I know there are people here who may be just starting out and uh, <clears throat> there was a time a half a century ago when I was just starting out. I remember, I remember, um, so full of so many ideas. And as, as my practice went on over the years, I got caught up in all kinds of self-judgment and uh, just uh, agony over my perceived lack of success. Um, banging my head against the wall and I didn't really know how to do that. Today I see it more clearly, not completely clearly for sure, I like to talk to somebody who does, but what practice really means is turning, returning to direct experience. Right from the beginning of Zen in China, centuries ago, millennia ago, Zen was a teaching beyond words and letters pointing directly to the mind. And so if you're awake to your life, if you're just in tune with what's going on, even if it's not so great, you're practicing. What's not practicing is shoving it back into a corner of the mind, getting caught up in a narrative, in a story, in what you like and what you don't like, trying to get what you think you don't have, trying to get rid of what you think you do have. Practice has nothing to do with some sort of special oriental flavor. It's a... Uh, there's nothing wrong with being enamored of the, uh, the aesthetic of Japan, uh, the amazing teachings of the Chinese masters, but it has nothing to do with any country, with Japan or China or with America. It's uh, wonderful in your practice to develop a reverence for life, for this adventure that we're on, 
for everybody who's in it with us, which is everyone, everyone. But don't become too holy. Don't become too caught up. Uh, the great Zen master, Zhao Zhou, Joshu, said, when I speak the name Buddha, I want to wash my mouth out for three days afterwards. <laughs> so what's wonderful about Zen It's just this right here, right now. Clear, natural, direct. Obviously, we have to pay attention to what's going on, telling you not to get caught up in self-blame or criticism doesn't mean you shouldn't be aware when you're <clears throat> going off in a bizarre direction or an unhelpful direction. Anytime you're unsure of what's going on, just ask yourself, to what am I paying attention? And if you find it's on a story that's running through your mind, you know you're missing what's real. I remember reading uh, a talk that uh, the Zen teacher Joko Beck gave. She said whenever she feels squirrely, she listens for the sound of traffic outside the windows of her zendo. Anything at all, anything natural, a sound, a feeling, bodily sensation, whatever is right in front of you is like an immediate way back into presence, into being here, in being here with this moment. Maybe when we begin, we don't realize how important that is, but the awareness grows as you continue to practice. You realize how wonderful it is to be sitting here, feeling whatever we're feeling. When we start out in practice, usually we're assigned a breath practice, counting the breath initially and then moving on maybe over time, uh, if we want, if it works out for us, to just following the breath, being aware of the breath. <clears throat> That's it. But if you're on the mat and you're thinking about other things, or if you make the <clears throat> mistake of thinking about what you're doing, it doesn't matter whether it's other things or what you're doing. If you're thinking, you've, you've gone astray. The great Indian master Ramana Maharshi, uh, who flourished in the first half of the 1900s, said, <clears throat> when there are thoughts, it is distraction. When there are no thoughts, it is meditation. It's a, it's a revelation to some people that the mind can be free of thoughts.
when we first start to practice, <clears throat> one of the first things we learn is that we're a mess. There's, there are thoughts and judgments and preferences, <clears throat> worries, anxieties, daydreams running through our mind nonstop from morning to night. It's overwhelming. I've compared it to <clears throat> floating down a stream and then hopping off the raft and deciding you're going to stand in the stream. The power of that stream is overwhelming. You really have to sink your feet in if you don't want to be swept away. There's a, uh, a guy named Dan Harris. He was a co-anchor, I think, on uh, maybe NBC, one of the major networks. Um, he got interested in meditation after having a panic attack on air, uh, which was related, I think, to a cocaine habit that he had. Well, however you get here, it's good. <laughs> anyway, he took up uh, insight meditation, mindfulness meditation, and uh, wrote a book called 10% Happier. People may have heard of it. Some people may have read it. Um, he's a, I like him. He's a good guy. And he says this early in that book, meditation is hard, especially if you're doing it right. What does that mean? That means you're not daydreaming. It's easy to sit there and just let the mind wander from here to there and think, okay, I'm meditating. This is kind of groovy. Yeah. <laughs> I had a friend once who walked into Doksan to a private meeting with Roshi Kaplow and announced, I shall become a great yogi. The bell rang immediately. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Roshi Kaplow didn't find it funny. <clears throat> Meditation is hard, especially when you're doing it right. It's like holding a live fish in your hand. As you sit there and try to watch your breath, it's going to wiggle away from you millions of times. The trick is catching yourself and coming back. I love that image. There was a time when I used to fish and uh, you'd be surprised how strong fish are. In, uh, in early practice, because it's so hard to uh, keep the mind on the breath or whatever the uh, focus of your meditation is, because that's so difficult, because it keeps being interrupted, because we keep forgetting what we're doing, it's easy to become discouraged and to think, well, some people have a talent for meditation. I'm not one of them. Uh, maybe there's just, I'm just wasting my time. <clears throat> Got to be something else I could be doing. But that's a misunderstanding of how meditation works. Anything we do again and again, devotedly, has an effect. 
I'm reminded of it in this process of <clears throat> recovering from the two knee replacements I've had in the last uh, one about a month and a half ago and another one maybe about five months ago. Every day pushing to the point of discomfort and you're not seeing a whole lot happening. But as the weeks go by, all of a sudden go in to see your physical therapist and they get their little protractor out and crank your knee <clears throat> in flexion about as far as you can humanly go. And they say, oh, you've improved. You're four degrees better. Uh, it, it does. It gradually, it gradually makes a difference. There's so many things in our lives where just repeated practice, uh, repeated exercise changes things. When we first begin to practice, we don't necessarily know that it's going to work for us. We may have a real suspicion that it will. Some people come in and they're extremely enthusiastic. It's great. But what you need is to put it to the test, to put it to the proof, and to begin to see things change. Somebody uh, told me recently <clears throat> They were, I think they may have been feeling a little discouraged and they looked down at their fingers and they noticed that their fingernails weren't bitten to the quick. And they realized, oh, something's changed. Maybe you find a difficult uh, conversation a little easier than it used to be. Maybe you find yourself able to drop uh, whatever's keeping you from doing what you need to do. Gradually, the power of our thoughts weakens. We're no longer whipsawed by what we think we can and can't do. I read this in the Zendo the other night, or the other, I think actually I read it last week in uh, the Sunday sitting. It's a quote from St. Francis de Sales, which I'll read again. If the heart wanders or is distracted, bring it back to the point quite gently. And even if you did nothing for the whole of your hour, but bring your heart back, though it went away every time you brought it back, your hour would be very well employed. It's hard to break the habit of attending to our thoughts, of being uh, driven by our thoughts, living in them. And often, even, even with someone with a, you know, a practice that they've sustained for some time, it's easy to compromise. We find ourselves tolerating a certain amount of thought in the background. Or maybe we tolerate a little bit of grasping, sort of straining to focus more clearly, as if there was something out there that we had to get. Even for a seasoned practitioner, it's good to bring this to mind, to really look to let the mind fall completely silent. Don't be afraid of it. Don't be discouraged. But don't sit there with a running commentary, <clears throat> trying to 
figure out what yard line you're on. Our thinking mind is, of course, a wonderful gift. So much that we do with it. But I think everybody in here understands that it has a place, and when it's out of its place, then it's a big problem. There's an article I read recently. Uh, it was published in the New Yorker quite a while ago. Uh, it's called Eureka Hunt. And uh, it's looking at the whole process of people having insight. And the article uh, begins by sort of laying out a story of a case of somebody having a life-saving insight <clears throat> right at the last minute. Uh, it's a story I'd read before. It's in a book, uh, first came across it in a book called Young Men and Fire. It's a story about this uh, uh, fire that happened in the Man Gulch, I think in Idaho. Uh, no, in Montana, in Montana. And I'll let, uh, I'll let uh, the author here, this is an article in The New Yorker, and the writer is Jonah Lehrer. He says, the summer of 1949 was long and dry in Montana. On the afternoon of August 15th, the hottest day ever recorded in the state, <clears throat> I think we might have topped that by now, a lightning fire was spotted in a remote area of pine forest. A parachute brigade of 15 firefighters known as smoke jumpers was dispatched out, out to put out the blaze. The man in charge was named Wag Dodge. <laughs> Great name. When the jumpers left Missoula in the C-47 cargo plane, they were told that the fire was small, just a few burning acres in Man Gulch. <clears throat> I'm not going to read this whole thing. I'm just going to sort of skip through it. Um, they, they parachuted in, and the blaze was already out of control, uh, and Dodge moved his men down a uh, hill towards the water. The fire was on an opposite side of a valley. As they moved down towards it, the breeze, which was blowing the flames away from them, suddenly reversed, and the fire leapt across the gulch and sparked the grass on that side and began moving uphill with an updraft says Dodge was suddenly staring at a wall of flame 50 feet tall and 300 feet deep. In a matter of seconds, the fire began to devour the grass, hurtling towards the smoke jumpers at 700 feet a minute. He, scree <clears throat> he screamed at his men to run, and they did. They dropped their gear, and they headed up for the ridge to escape the fire. <clears throat> After a few minutes, he looked back and saw that the fire was moving faster than it was possible to run. Says, <clears throat> so Dodge stopped running. The decision wasn't as suicidal as it appeared. In a moment of desperate insight, he had devised an escape plan. He lit a match and ignited the ground in front of him, the flames quickly moving up the grassy slope. 
and then he stepped into the shadow of his fire so that he was surrounded by a buffer of burned land. He wet his handkerchief with water from his canteen, clutched the cloth to his mouth, and lay down in the smoldering embers. Then he waited for the fire to pass over him. In the story, as, uh, as I read it in uh, that book, Young Men and Fire, he actually did manage to get a few of the others as they ran by to come into his patch of burned grass, and they too were saved. But everybody who tried to outrun the fire died. Guess if you go there, you can see crosses where they, where they fell. And then the uh, the author begins looking at the question of how did that occur to him. Said uh, Wag Dodge could never explain where his idea for the escape fire came from. It just seemed the logical thing to do was all he could muster. And it compares it to uh, Archimedes shouting Eureka when he saw his bathwater rise and realized that uh, objects replace water, certainly understood something which wasn't understood at the time, or when Newton suddenly uh, formulated his theory of gravity. And another key point about it was that Dodge knew immediately when the idea came that it would work. Uh, he simply knew that it would which is another characteristic of insight. <clears throat> and he turns now to uh, cognitive neuroscientists in various places working on what happens in the brain when we uh, go beyond logical thought and suddenly summon an answer from somewhere else. And there are just a few things about that that I think are really... Uh, helpful to, to understand. First is that we have two hemispheres in our brain. Everybody knows this these days, the left and the right. And the left hemisphere is devoted to language and logic. And the right hemisphere um, is really sort of the hemisphere of music and insight. And, uh, and we're not really sure what all it does. In the old days, it used to be if somebody had a brain damage and it was in the right lobe, they would be told that they were lucky because all your language and logic is in the left. But people with, uh, with those kinds of strokes or lesions often demonstrated a, an inability to understand nuance. Uh, just uh, sort, of, sort of like... Uh, somebody who's really way out on the autism spectrum and can't really see some of the messages that are uh, encoded below the surface when we talk with each other. And uh, this guy ran into a demonstration of something called verbal overshadowing, which is they, they give people uh, a problem. Uh, and it's a problem that uh, is hard to solve logically. You're, not gonna, you're probably not going to hit on the answer if you just go through all the different possibilities. But if those people who are working on the problem uh, describe what they're doing 
sort of think out loud, they never can come up with, this, with the solution because what they've done is they've put all their energy into the left side of their brain. They're totally working with thought. And when they do, the right hemisphere, this hemisphere of insight, of integration, of sudden understanding, is shut down. He made a whole bu bunch of little, you know, sort of brain teasers, which he called compound remote associate problems, or crap. <laughs> so, uh, he later changed it to CRA. <laughs> he started publishing in journals. Uh, in a CRA word puzzle, the subject is given three words, such as pine, crab, and sauce, and asked to think of a word that can be combined in all three. Some people may already have the answer. It's apple, pineapple, crab apple, applesauce. Uh, they're given about 30 seconds, and sometimes you can get it just sort of going one at a time and thinking what fits with this, what fits with this, but there's another process that happens. People who do... Uh, crossword puzzles or any other kind of puzzle uh, are familiar with this where you look for a while, you work on it for a while, and then you let the mind relax or you walk away and come back and all of a sudden the, the answer is right there. And what they found is that when, the, when you reach an impasse, a logical impasse, um, the, they're, I'm not going to get into all the different parts of the brain that are talking to one another, but basically, an area in the areas in the right hemisphere begin to branch out, and there's all sorts of stuff that we'll never know consciously. But an answer can be found when there's the right relaxation. All of a sudden, that answer is presented to uh, the prefrontal cortex, to our conscious mind. And we have it with no idea of how it came. Just all of a sudden it popped into my mind. They did a lot of work, <clears throat> mapped where everything was happening, identified areas of the brain that are intimately involved in all of this. And they found that when the insight came, it got really, really interesting brain waves. It says, sometimes just when the brain is about to give up, an insight appears. You'll see people bolt up in their chair and their eyes go all wide. Sometimes they even say, aha, before they blurt out the answer. The suddenness of the insight comes with a burst of brain activity. 300 milliseconds before a participant communicates the answer, the EEG registers a spike of gamma rhythm, which is the highest electrical frequency generated by the brain. Gamma rhythm is thought to come from the binding of neurons if cells distributed across the cortex draw themselves together into a new network, which is able then to enter consciousness. It is as if the insight had gone incandescent. I hope I'm not geeking out too much about this, but... It just it's just amazing. It's wonderful. And, of course, <laughs> I think in all of our minds, there's the recognition that this is what's going on when we solve all difficult problems. And what's so helpful about talking about it is understanding what's necessary for
for that kind of insight to happen. We have to be working seriously on the problem. We have to be banging our head against the wall. Anybody who's uh, been assigned a koan working on something like, what is this, or who am I, or what is Mu? Coming back to it again and again. How is it that an answer comes? The insight process, he says, he writes here, as sketched by these guys, is a delicate mental balancing act. At first, the brain lavishes the scarce resource of attention on a single problem. But once the brain is sufficiently focused, the cortex needs to relax in order to seek out the more remote association in the right hemisphere, which will provide the insight. The relaxation phase is crucial, this guy says. That's why so many insights happen during warm showers. Another ideal moment for insight is in the early morning, right after we wake up. The drowsy brain is unwound and disorganized, open to all sorts of unconventional ideas. It's a pattern we see in scientific discoveries. So many scientists have been working day and night on a problem, theoretical or uh, usually, and all of a sudden, uh, the answer comes. Famous case is a mathematician named Poincaré, who uh, can't remember what the problem was he was working on, but it came to him as he was stepping onto a bus. He knew immediately he had the answer. Poincaré actually wrote an essay called Mathematical Creation where he said the best way to think about complex problems is to immerse yourself in the problem until you hit an impasse. Then when it seems that nothing good is accomplished, you should find a way to distract yourself, preferably by going on a walk or a journey. The answer will arrive when you least expect it. And then he <laughs> goes on to Richard Feynman, who talked about before the Nobel winning prize, Nobel prize winning physicist who preferred to relax the relaxed atmosphere of a topless bar, where he would sip seven up and watch the entertainment, and if inspiration struck, scribble equations on cocktail napkins. <laughs> That's how I want to practice. <laughs> <clears throat> the researchers aren't quite ready to offer extensive practical advice, but when pressed, they often sound like Poincaré. Poincaré, you've got to know when to step back. It's something that happens naturally when you're just invested in looking for the answer. But for some people working on koans, <clears throat> a lot of the investment is on wanting to be doing a good job or wanting to make the teacher happy or wanting to feel worthy. And of course that energy takes away from your focus 
you now split the mind and it makes it hard for you to just be hammering right on that point and it makes it hard for you to relax how can you relax when you're fighting a battle with yourself over whether you're doing it right or wrong my own motto is give the kid a break treat yourself with the same compassion you would anyone else Be willing to do things differently. Maybe you have to turn your whole life upside down. Maybe you just need to drop some habit uh, that you're clinging to. Roshi's advice in Sashin is often just to do something differently. If you're used to going to every meal, skip a meal. used to going to bed right when the evening sitting ends, try staying up a little bit. If you're used to staying up until you're exhausted, try getting some sleep. <coughs> Stay with the practice. One more thing from this article. <clears throat> One of the guys tells a story about an expert Zen meditator who took part in one of the CRA insight experiments. At first, the meditator couldn't solve any of the insight problems. This Zen guy went through 30 or so of the verbal puzzles and just drew a blank. He was used to being very focused, but you can't solve these problems if you're too focused. Then just as he was about to give up, he started solving one puzzle after another until by the end of the experiment, he was getting them all right. It was an unprecedented streak. Normally, people don't get better as the task goes along. If anything, they get a little bored. This guy, Kuonios, believes that the dramatic improvement of the Zen meditator came from his paradoxical ability to focus on not being focused so that he could pay attention to those remote associations in the right hemisphere. He had the cognitive control to let go. He became an insight machine. As the years go by, <clears throat> our instrument is refined. Our ability to operate without unnecessary thinking blossoms. Our ability to sit in silence, just hear the rain coming down, blossoms. Our ability to put things down, to drop what's not healthful, what's not helpful, is strengthened. 
But all of us have times when we're dominated by thought. There's a, there's a term that's used in uh, ACT therapy, A-C-T. It stands for uh, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. <clears throat> it's uh, probably the uh, form of psychotherapy that's the closest to Buddhism. And I think they've taken a lot of their terms from Buddhist teachings. They have this concept of cognitive fusion which basically just means you're stuck in your thoughts. Uh, it's presented like this by a guy named Russ Harris, one of the founders, I believe. It says, why the term fusion? Think of two sheets of metal fused together. If you couldn't use the term fused, how would you describe them? Welded, melded, bonded, joined, attached, stuck. All these terms point to the same idea, no separation. In a state of cognitive fusion, we're inseparable from our thoughts. We're welded to them, bonded to them, so caught up in them that we aren't even aware that we are thinking. Now, most people, this isn't happening on the mat, but it sure can happen off the mat, <clears throat> especially if there's an emotional content to whatever's going on, especially if we're afraid or threatened or jealous or angry. Diffusion thus means separating, detaching, or distancing from our thoughts taking a step back and seeing them for what they are, nothing more or less than words and pictures. So often hearing from Bowdoin Roshi, <clears throat> especially in Sashin, they're just thoughts. They have no substance to them. All the power of our thoughts comes from our buying into them. Someone sent out a, a picture of a car with a bumper sticker that said, why believe what you think? It's a really good question. Just that, that little bit of different distance, not automatically buying into it, changes your whole life, makes you softer, makes you better able to uh, meet with other people, better able to see what's needed. He goes on, cognitive fusion basically means that our thoughts dominate our behavior. Thus, in ACT, we may talk with clients of being pushed around by your thoughts or allowing thoughts to tell you what to do. Or we may talk of thoughts as bullies, or we may compare the mind to a fascist dictator. Or we may ask what happens when you let that thought run your life. What happens when you let that thought of not being good enough run your life? What happens when you let a thought of being unlovable sit there unchecked? So much that we can see when we begin to look. And then if we can find the courage to act gradually, gradually, 
we can change that for the sake of everyone, not just to relieve our own suffering. He says, when our thoughts dominate our attention, we often talk about being hooked, entangled, caught up, or carried off by them. He says, human beings dwell in two different worlds. At birth, we dwell only in the world of direct experience, the world as we know it directly through the five senses, the world that we can see, hear, touch, taste, and smell. But as we grow older, we learn to think. As that ability grows, we start to spend more and more time in a second world, the world of language. Fusion means we're stuck in the world of language. We're so caught up in all those words and pictures running through our head that we lose contact with the world of direct experience. Meditation or awareness is like a shuttle between these two worlds. It transports us from the world of language into the world of direct experience. I think that's one of the reasons why uh, every time they measure how behavior affects people's mental health, find that going out into nature, taking walks, spending time alone in the woods is such so restorative. So besides the job of learning to focus, learning to keep the mind on one thing, on the breath or whatever the practice is, whatever we're doing, we're also learning how to open. There's a a quote I read once before from... uh, Shoto Roshi, he's the abbot of uh, Sogenji in, in Japan where a number of center people have, uh, have gone to train. And he says this about the role of openness in, in Zazen. He says, the way to avoid haziness in Zazen is to open yourself up as much as possible. This opening is the point of Zazen. In fact, the mind becomes clearer in Zazen, not through forced concentration, but through ever-expanding openness. As we liberate our awareness, it becomes larger and more vast. To achieve this openness, you need to relax completely. When you feel sleepiness or mental distraction coming on, or when you find yourself getting fuzzy in your focus, don't try to focus harder. Just rest your eyes on the point in front of you in a way that you're clearly aware of it without forcing your concentration upon it. Thus, one-pointed attention does not involve concentrating on one thing and shutting everything else out, but rather opening your awareness so that everything is seen clearly. When we begin to understand this, it's so much easier to take our practice out into the world. You know, when you're first assigned to breath practice, hopefully the teacher will tell you when you're off the mat, 
you don't try to follow the breath, you know, that would be <laughs> cumbersome and ridiculous. Just become one with everything that you're doing. And uh, most people hear that and they make some efforts to do that, but it's hard to really catch on. But there's so, so much that we can accomplish, so much change that can happen when we develop the habit of just tuning in to what's going on around us. What am I experiencing directly? I don't mean singling things out and saying, oh, there's a bird, oh, I see a house, but just feeling whatever comes up. It could be sight, it could be sound, could be just somatic awareness, just the slight tinglings and sensations we have in our body, just to be aware of that. Just whatever is here in the present moment. There's a saying in music, I'm not a musician, so just borrowing from them, just you need to love the sound of your instrument. For us, this present moment is our instrument. There's a story told about uh, Bertrand Russell. Don't know if it's true or not, but supposedly he was at a party standing off by himself and the hostess came by and said, uh, Oh, Lord Russell, I do hope you are enjoying yourself. And he turned to her and said, It is the only thing I am enjoying. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think he really was enjoying it. Um, yeah, yeah. A lot of talk, but... Um, just we, we know to one degree or another we know what we need to do and it's, it's right there for us we're so fortunate to have a map to have some pointers to have other people that we can practice with to have a center so unusual not that many people live within traveling distance of a good Zen center. I said at the beginning that the key is don't separate your practice and your life. Maybe I should add, enjoy it. Enjoy your practice and enjoy your life. Even when it's hard, even when things aren't working out. Can all aspire to be a happy warrior. Anyway, that's what I'm going to try to do. Uh, we'll stop here and recite the four vows.